Hey, how's it going? This is Craig Cannon, and you're listening to Y Combinator's podcast. Today's episode is with Leah Culvert and Tom Sparks. Leah is the co-founder and CTO of Breaker, which is a social podcast listening and discovery app. Breaker went through YC in the winter 2017 batch. And Leah is also an author of both the OAuth and OEmbed API specifications. Tom's an engineer here on the YC software team, and he also co-founded CryptoSeal, which went through YC in the summer 2011 batch. They were later acquired by Cloudflare in 2014. So the first part of this episode is about security, and the second part is about podcasting. We answered a ton of questions from Twitter, so hopefully we got to yours. All right, here we go. All right, so how about we start with some questions from Twitter? Um, I actually think this one might have been on Facebook. So Brady Simpson asked, how do we deal with the ever-increasing pressure from governments trying to get into devices? Tom, do you have an opinion on this one? I do. So I think one of the most important things to think about is that some of this is just legislation-based. Um, however, some vendors do actually care about the privacy and security of their users. Um, Apple's been pretty good about it. Microsoft has actually done a lot of work for this. Previously, when BlackBerry was still a thing, they were basically number one. But um, right now, Apple's pretty much the most consumer-friendly in terms of security for just your personal devices. They give you a lot of options. They do a lot of stuff behind the scenes to make it really easy. The Your passcode is actually backed by some really, really cool stuff. Um, you know, your, your fingerprint reader on your phone is pretty, pretty simple. It works pretty much all the time. Um, so, you know, that, that's easy security stuff. Uh, the government trying to subpoena the information from your devices is a lot, uh, bigger can of worms. And it kind of goes back to, you know, the constitution essentially like fourth, fourth amendment, uh, fifth amendment stuff. So, uh, search and seizure is really kind of up in the air with electronic devices, um, you know, this, this kind of goes all the way back to the 1960s in terms of personal privacy. Uh, in the sixties, the government came up with something, uh, the called echelon, I believe. And, um, you know, that was basically trying to get data to spy on spies. <laughs> um, you know, in the, in the nineties, it was, you know, Clinton trying to do stuff to catch more spies basically. And with email and stuff becoming more and more prevalent, they just, you know, put in this giant apparatus to do surveillance on the American population. So vendors, when they tackle this, kind of have to go, well, what can we do without, you know, taking off the government? Apple's done a good job of basically saying, no, we're not going to give you the keys to things. You know, if you want to get into somebody's phone, you're going to have to basically get around the protections we've put in because... We don't want to make something that's intentionally insecure. Uh, and, and they've done pretty well with that. They've gotten some flack from some people. but mm. So a as a layperson, like what precautions are you taking with your own data? I think for the most part, you know, as long as you use the, the key code and, you know, any sort of like biometric authentication on your, on your devices, you're in a good spot. If you don't do any of that, you're kind of... <laughs> You're just kind of in the wind. Um, you know, the government has pretty deep uh, ability to surveil you. Um, so your phone is probably not really going to be the vector they go after the most unless you're sending encrypted messages and stuff. If you've got signal, they probably want to see what you're doing. Um, but if they can subpoena you and you don't have 
um, you know, good protection on your phone. You're just, they're, they're going to see what's there. They can't, they can't make Apple decrypt what, what you've got. Um, mm. if you've got an Android phone, you're much less well off. Mm. So it's really just, you know, uh, it, legislation and, you know, using good technology. Um, I believe the, the pixel eight or this, uh, what is it? The, the new Samsung phone has some pretty neat stuff built into it. Mm-hmm. That's got good security. Um, what about you, Leah? Do you do anything in particular? I'm actually, so I have an iPhone and I'm, I have some little paranoia things. Like I know how to turn off the phone. So if I was like panicked, so, so I do, I actually just got the iPhone 10. So I have the facial recognition. Um, but I've ha- always had, I always tend to get the latest iPhone. So I had the touch ID as well. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is I think it's much easier for law enforcement to access your phone via touch ID, like you're saying through touch ID or facial recognition. But the nice thing Apple does is if you have three failed attempts or if you shut off your phone, you have to reenter your passcode mm-hmm. and that's much harder for them to access. Um, so I've, I've practiced like powering down my phone. I, <laughs> I tend to only put one of my thumbs in the thumbprint so that if I needed to, I could use my other thumb and just pretend like oh it's just i'm nervous it's not working um until it locks me out um i don't know i'm is that all weird and paranoid but uh, that's great but <laughs> <laughs> i feel like it's the price you pay you know it's like the trade-off for using some of the convenience features yeah but what about on the company side so at breaker how do you guys think about security Sure. That's a great question. Um, so we basically follow sort of standard web service practices. We have an API in the back end, um, on the front end, basic iOS stuff. Uh, so big stickling, a uh, big thing for me is keeping private data in the keychain. Um, it's an iOS developer and not in any other local files, especially not in, um, NS user defaults or putting it in the info.plist file. <laughs> Don't put stuff in there. You can unzip. An, an app directory to look at anyone's info plus, which is great. Like I actually use it to find out what other apps are doing for certain like Apple specific settings. Cause they have like these weird configurations that you can do for like, um, interoperability with other apps and it never seems to work. So I was just like download people's, uh, apps and <laughs> unzip them and look at their info.plus. <laughs> Um, but yeah, yeah, just making sure that as an app developer, when you're storing sensitive data, such as, um, passwords, usernames, any PII, personally identifying information about people that you are doing so in a thoughtful, um, way. And, you know, I think there are a lot of best practices about this and I'm not, I don't want to go into all of them, but it's pretty easy to just Google and find out what they all are. Um, and just to be aware of it, just to know that you have sensitive data and power, um, and to be really aware of uh, that you have a responsibility as an app developer to protect that data. Um, and for uh, actually, it was interesting. I was thinking about cloud services and the government accessing cloud services. Um, and for uh, my last job is at Dropbox and a lot of other companies do this as well. They publish all of the requests from the government. So the legal team publishes them all online through like a disclosure report every year. So you can, <laughs> you can see what, uh, what gets asked for. Um, but yeah, it, and it's part of the, the, the most companies today who are behaving well don't want to be overly generous with providing data to the government, but under certain legal conditions, it is necessary. So, hmm. but making that all very transparent to users when you sign up for a service. Um, knowing sort of how they deal with government requests. 
Cool. Well, let's go to Brady's second question then. Um, so he asked, uh, why is auth tech changing every few years from YubiKeys to two-factor auth to thumbprint to face recognition? What are we optimizing for? Speed and reliability or security? What's next? Or just what's cool? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, like the face ID thing, I think I like the emoji, like the making animals talk. And yeah, <laughs> I think I like that more than the actual security part of it. But uh yeah, it's this trade-off between convenience and um, security, right? So I mm-hmm. think a lot of these new technologies coming out are for convenience. Um, I'd like to hear Tom's thoughts on these things, too. I mean, all this stuff is actually really old. It's just the the thing that we're actually using it now. Like, uh, I, I went back and looked, and uh, you know, two-factor auth you know, kind of started with uh, one-time passwords. That stuff was originated in the 1880s. So like, it's really not new. Um, really what it is, is people are becoming more aware of their own security. They want to make sure that, you know, whatever personal data they have doesn't, you know, get out there. Like most people have really terrible passwords and they're sort of like, Oh, okay. I, even if I have this terrible password, you know, if I use this little thing, it'll keep my, my personal data safe. And I I think that's good. I mean, I don't think that, you know, the way that we implement it is necessarily, uh, you know, what matters. I think it's just the fact that people are using it more and becoming more aware. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think, I think speed and reliability are really important. Um, when you look at what's available, I think if you go back, like I have a laptop from the nineties that has a fingerprint reader on it. We never really used it. Um, but, but it was the thing that you could use. Um, it, it worked pretty well, actually, you know, now there's, it's just, it's more ubiquitous. There's more, you know, multi-factor auth and things. Um, I think, you know, looking forward, I think we'll even see probably like DNA ID. I mean, sensors are getting smaller and smaller all the time. You know, you can detect so many different factors like humans have, you know, unique chemical fingerprints even. So you could have something where it's like, oh, my phone smells me or something like that. <laughs> yeah, heartbeats. Yeah. Like I've seen recently. That's pretty yeah. cool. What's, what's interesting about this is that, like, it's not just about two, like, we talk about two-factor authentication. What it really is is multi-factor authentication and having those factors be of different types. Um, I'm going to try and remember the different types, but there is <laughs> something, <laughs> something you know, something you are, like biometric. Um, and what's the, what's another one? Something you have. So a device. So device biometric and um, something you remember, like a password. Um, and so having two different factors, I think, is is the key for two-factor authentication. Um, so like a YubiKey is a device, or if you have Authenticator on your phone, like an Authenticator app, mm-hmm. um, that's that's like a device one. Um, the thumbprint facial recognition is biometrics. And there's pros and cons to each, right? So uh, what I find super interesting is I love the convenience of the face and the thumbprint. Um, but what's really nice about the device and something you remember is you can replace it. So if it were to get stolen, so if someone takes a cast of your thumbprint, it's a lot harder to change your thumbprint than it is to yeah. change your password, right? Change so, your face. So a nice, a nice security feature is the ability to change something if you feel like it's been compromised to, to make a new password or to change up your device. The device one's a huge pain in the ass because every time I get a new iPhone, I spend the next like hour switching over all my authenticator <laughs> keys. It's like, oh my gosh, it's such yep. a pain. I just did it. Yeah. Did you read the post about the the mask faking out the oh iPhone gosh, X? That's so freaky. Yeah. <laughs> Have you tried to replicate it? Uh, do you have mask making materials we can do uh, right you can now? work on it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, but it's super scary because it's not like you're going to change your no. face, right? So having it as a second factor or having that as the – I guess it's the first factor, right? It's the first protection. But having the passcode as the backup for that is super important. Okay. Um, something that you can change, right? Yeah. I, I've just been wondering if there's like a line for you guys where you're like, you know what? Face ID, I'm good. Like I don't need this right now because I'm going to like – just like you said, there is a point at which if someone hacks you or figures out a way or some exploit, it's open forever. Are there certain li- like, or is the convenience also for security-minded people just so high that you opt into it? I love the convenience. So I'm a big one-password user, so I don't I don't actually know any of my passwords except my one password. Um, and now it's two taps. I think you tap once on the button that says "Look up my password," and it does the face or recognition on one password, <laughs> and then you tap the password that you want to enter. It's just because it knows what site it's on or whatever, and it's just so fast. It's just tap tap. Whereas you know, I've, I've been using uh, Password Manager for ages, and it's such a pain to like switch apps, like get the password, copy it, paste it in. Um, yeah, so hmm. it, it, it is the convenience is phenomenal. Um, but what is the risk then? I hope no one takes a mask in my face. <laughs> um, so, do you, do you use any what uh, two-factor devices or biometric stuff? Yeah, I mean, I uh, well, I don't do as much uh, data center stuff anymore. But uh, you know, I've definitely done a lot of the biometric auth stuff. Um, funnily enough, a buddy of mine was the first person to break the, the touch ID on the, on the iPhone. Um, he also recently published something about, uh, the guys who did the mask thing. Um, what do you mean by break? He like copied someone's fingerprint? Basically. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a few things that Apple did to, to try to make sure that there's some liveness and some other stuff, but you know, it's hardware at the end of the day. So it's not, you know, it's a little fallible, but it's, it's not bad. Yeah, like uh, there's the setting on the eye f- uh, the facial recognition where if your eyes are closed, it won't read your face, hmm. which is really creepy because I assume that's like to protect yourself, you could just close your eyes. It's so obvious. It's not like the left thumb, right thumb thing that you're talking about. Like if you show your phone to your face and you close your eyes, someone no- knows that you're trying to fake it. I guess. But I guess, did you guys know? I mean, it's I didn't a know really about this. weird feature. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, so someone, uh, Tom asked specifically about YC. Mm. So Rick Deacon asked, what precautions does YC take to protect data? So, I mean, we, we deploy, you know, best practices. Um, we don't do anything, you know, super, super scary. Um, you know, we, we just make sure that we know where our users are. We make sure that people use strong passwords we use, you know, strong encryption, um, VPN. Yeah. V- VPN is a, is an easy one. You know, we have some dedicated hardware and stuff for VPNing so that that is kind of, uh, a little harder to, to, you know, remotely get into, but, you know, but best practice stuff, we, we stick to it. Um, you know, we do not, you know, have nuclear secrets or anything like that. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not worried about someone parachuting in with, you know, machine guns and chainsaws um you know our stuff is pretty it's it's pretty open i mean if you're a yc founder your data is well protected um Mm -hmm. and we want to make sure that that stays that way but you know we're we're not gonna you know do dna id to get into something right so um you know we we do we do a pretty good job of just making sure that everything's pretty buttoned down and code reviews um, that's kind of the biggest thing, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's all pretty, pretty easy. Our developers are great. So we're, we're lucky in that aspect. Um, 
it's a, yeah, it's a really good team. So that helps. I would agree with that. Um, Rick also asked another question. He asked, what is the future of security for startups? Do you guys have strong opinions here? I think there's a good trend of people just not reinventing the wheel um, for security. Reinventing the wheel is pretty much the worst thing you can do. I mean, every time we see, you know, a big hack, it's because of somebody did something where they're like, oh, I'm going to be really clever and reinvent this thing. And like, cool, you know, you forgot this one thing where if you add an extra zero or something <laughs> like, oh, hey, look, this password's been clear. So that that. That happens. Um, I, I think outsourcing auth is a really important thing. You know, OAuth is, is great. You know, uh, SAML is great. Most companies don't really need to worry about auth, you know, in, in that way. You know, Facebook auth is great. It's ubiquitous. It's pretty solid, you know, well-run company. You know, it's, it's, it's everywhere. You don't need to reinvent that wheel. Mm. Um, I think, you know, moving forward, like really it's just going to be what companies need, you know, most startups don't need, you know, crazy military grade stuff. They don't need HSMs. They don't need TPMs. Even, um, your phone has a TPM in it, but like, you know, it's so ubiquitous that, that you don't need it. So having, you know, something like OAuth just removes the need for really trying to have to build in a lot of security. Mm-hmm. You know, beyond that, um, a lot of CIs, uh, continuous integration softwares have, you know, things where you can just sort of turn on like code checking. You can do, you know, easy, easy bounce checking. You can do a lot of security stuff just automatically. And it's really nice. You know, you don't even, I mean, most developers do care somewhat about it, but you know, when you get the intern in and they're like, oh yeah, you know, I wrote this great function that, you know has you know one one thing in it right like they're not necessarily going to know um, yeah. so that's why having some oversight is good but you know frameworks eliminate a lot of these problems there's a lot of really great frameworks out now i think really now more than ever there's a lot of, just a lot of really good stuff you know, go has some pretty interesting stuff in it um, just in terms of you know programming level security mm-hmm. um you know I, I made the joke the other day that you know if you're if you need random numbers the best way to get them is uh is to use a language that doesn't have any sanity checking in it at all <laughs> and new developer yeah <laughs> because they they won't even know that they don't that they need to do memory management and there's something already there so yeah totally. and leah would you advise the same thing i totally agree with tom i think when you're looking to um build a, a website or an app or something um to use best practices is the way to go and uh, these things are sort of open standards and open protocols for a reason um, because large teams of people work on it. So I worked on OAuth, um, the first version, (laughs) 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 which is maybe not as good as subsequent versions, but worked on the first version, but it was, it was a large team. I'd say at any given time we had, you know, 20, 30 people working on different parts of it. And um, I'm personally not a security expert. Um, I'm a security hobbyist. (laughs) So it was fun to work with folks from like Google, Yahoo, mint.com, like financial institutions um, who definitely had more at stake in terms of, rather than I was working on a social network at the time, <laughs> a little less at stake. 
um, than financial data. Um, but it was nice to have them sanity check, especially um, all the the algorithms for hashing and to make sure that like we were kind of doing things in a way that could protect against known attacks, um, things that people knew were like, uh, you know, vulnerabilities and vectors. Um, but nowadays, like as a just an app or web developer, you don't have to think about any of that, right? Like you to use Facebook login, it's like you download an SDK and you like follow the instructions and it just works and it's secure and fantastic and yeah. face, let Facebook deal with it, right? Like it's, re- <laughs> it's really great. Um, but that being said, I do think there is still room to innovate on sort of the user ex- experience side of security. So that's when we talk about things like Face ID or um, like sort of new, what can we do now that we couldn't do, you know, 10 years ago that we would have liked to, Right. Um, so some of that stuff is fun to play with. I'm really interested. So after working on OAuth, I'm still really interested in sort of like user login um, and all of the, especially preventing against targeted attacks is like one of my like fun hobbies. And so some of the stuff you see now that I'm super interested in is when when you log in on a new device, mm. that you get an email about it. Um, if your password changes, that you get notified. How do you prevent you know, someone changing the email address and changing the password at the same, like too close together. Um, some of those things are just like product things to think about. Like if you're developing a product that you need to be secure, like what can you do in the case of both sort of um, just general attacks to get data from your database or the more like targeted attacks, um, which is kind of, I don't know why that's interesting to me. I just find it like fascinating, especially in the age of like Instagram celebrities and things like I think it's pretty interesting. And and people in general aren't super good about security. So how can we as app developers um, protect someone in the case that they do have a terrible password? Well, I think you saw it, you know, with people porting phone numbers for crypto stuff in particular. Oh, my like, gosh. Those are giant. Those are horrible. It really brought to attention how bad the cell phone companies were prepared um, for multi-factor authentication. Like, I don't use my phone for for multi-factor authentication i would highly recommend against it you mean sms yeah not using sms or phone calls or anything like that as as a fact as a fact uh as a factor so you use google authenticator yeah yeah okay. or a similar application yeah. there's like authy there's some other ones they're pretty good okay Hmm. Or, you, or YubiKey or, you know, any of them. A million. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of other options. I just, it, you know, like when you're yeah. relying on someone who gets probably paid minimum wage to sort of like be phone support, I don't know if I would be counting on that. No, totally. And um, do you have crypto thoughts in general? So uh, Saif, uh, I told you this before the podcast, Tom. <laughs> I, I get a name wrong every time. Uh, Saif Olahi asked, what are the most recent security concerns in crypto? Or cryptocurrency, just to be clear. I think really it's just, you know, it's new. People are getting used to it. Um, you know, people are sort of inventing their own languages to go along with them. Um, you know, what we were talking about earlier with, with Ethereum the other week where somebody kind of deleted <laughs> a really important function <laughs> out of a contract. Um, you know, that, that, that stuff will happen and, you know, people will just, you know, take that lesson and move on. Um, I don't think cryptocurrencies are necessarily more or less secure than anything else. I mean, cash, if you leave it on a table, somebody's probably going to yeah. walk off with it. Um, you know, we saw a lot of early Bitcoin stuff go away because people were using like horribly insecure hosting stuff. You know, uh, hopefully people don't continue that, but I'm sure it will. I mean, 
people leave their wallets with, you know, passwords of like one, two, three, four on their laptops. Um, some people will, I have seen wallets stored on public anonymous FTP sites with like a password of like one, mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you it's like basic stuff. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean <laughs> totally. You, you know, you can't protect users from themselves, really. Um, I don't think, I don't think crypto specifically has a problem. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's interesting to see how people are using it. I think it's kind of nice that you know you can have it be so ubiquitous, um, and it's sort of like a, it sort of brings power back to the people who use it a little bit versus like. With cash, you're like, oh, central bank, you know, you have to do yeah. this. But I, I'm not a crypto libertarian on this issue at all. Yeah, I actually, I'm fascinated by, um, I, I love the blockchain as a technology um, from like a database ledger kind of perspective. And actually, I have a podcast to recommend since I work on a podcasting app. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a show called Invest Like the Best, and they have a three-part series called Hash Power. And it's on the technology behind um, the blockchain and Bitcoin and uh, also investing. Um, and I think they have a couple other topics that they cover, sort of like kind of a broad look at everything to do with cryptocurrency. And I loved it because I, I didn't I knew sort of the general idea, but I didn't know like the history or like so much in depth about it. Um, but it was excellent. And um, what is interesting to me um, personally is uh, distributed versus centralized systems and how they play out. Um, I feel like the blockchain is the first really distributed system we've seen uh, become quite popular um, in recent memory. I mean, the internet itself is a large distributed system, so I can't say it's like the only really interesting distributed <laughs> yeah. system. But what we've been seeing with the internet is a centralization. Like we've been seeing centralized powers, especially with the large tech companies now really consolidating, right? Like Facebook having eight of the top 10 apps in the uh, in the app store, right? So the, like large amassing of power and user data with uh, very few companies. Um, and what's interesting to me about the blockchain is taking that back a little bit. Mm -hmm. And there is some centralization around the blockchain. Like there are like mining conglomerates. There are services that will host and, and store your data for you. So cloud services, instead of using like a physical device to store your um, private keys, you could use a cloud service. Um, and what's interesting about that is like the insurance factor of it. So when you think about like banks and how your money is insured, seeing these companies come up with like, now we're going to insure cryptocurrency. And it's like, ooh, this is interesting, right? It's basically like rebuilding a banking system built for like the internet age. It's real. It's super interesting. And I, I'm not sure how it's all going to play out. Um, and I agree. Some of uh, the biggest security concern right now, I'd say the number one is user error, right? Mm -hmm. um, I totally agree with that. I think that th that the fact that it's decentralized kind of pr protects against a lot of like fraud or uh, malicious intent by um by centralized power, but it makes it really hard to recover your data if anything happens. Um, yeah, so it's fascinating. Yeah, so I mean, it's kind of like measure twice, cut once before you send someone a bunch of Ethereum. Yeah, because this has happened a bunch on um, just private slacks around ICOs. Oh. People post fake, uh, it, like they'll steal the avatar from the creator and create an account in that Slack and then post an address like a minute before the ICO would happen. And it's just like, whew, this torrent of money flows to them. And uh, it's all a scan. And, and it's like, oh, there you go, gone. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. But just be very careful. I don't know. I, I have no idea how one establishes trust with cryptocurrencies other than by using centralized systems. 
it's pretty difficult. I yeah, know. I don't know. Well, you did mention podcasts and we should talk about podcasts here. So let's jump up to Kat's question. So Kat Mignolik, partner of YC, threw a question out. Um, let's start with the first part. What are your favorite podcasts? Oh, that's a great question. And actually, my my big thing is, uh, I want to just put a plug for Breaker here. You should follow <laughs> me on Breaker and you can easily see what my favorite podcasts are. What's great about Breaker is it's social. You can see what people are listening to. You can see what they subscribe to. You can see what people are liking. You can see what podcast episodes are hot. Actually, I found this Hash Power series because it became popular on Breaker. It got a lot of attention, a lot of comments. Um, and it's not I, – I normally wouldn't listen to a podcast called Invest Like the Best. Yeah. Um, but it definitely was was an interesting series. So um, podcasts that don't exist that I wish did, I think there's – like right now on Breaker, it's a lot of tech. It's a lot of startups. It wasn't that in the early days with hmm. few users. We had more true crime, um, comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I I, I guess – what I'd like is I, I personally love storytelling, so I'd like to hear more diverse stories. So stories from people you wouldn't normally hear on podcasts. I guess that would be my request. So if you out there are a listener and you hmm. think you have something unique to say, um, go for it. Um, Before we go further, Tom, did you have a favorite podcast? So don't really do a lot of podcasts, but I think my my favorite sort of equivalent of that is uh, it's called The Life of Boris. Um, it's about this, you know, uh, Slavic like YouTube dude who like posts like videos and like does a bunch of Q and a with his fans. It's, uh, it's pretty funny because it basically, you know, harkens back to a lot of the the sort of cold war era stuff. Um, it's, it's kind of fun. It's, it's pretty goofy. Um, you know, he talks about all kinds of stuff like, you know, the gamut of like video games, cars, you know, <laughs> cooking. Like really? I learned, I learned how to cook a bunch of Russian stuff from it. So like, uh, you know, uh, I kind of like that, that kind of variety. Hmm. Um, but otherwise, I mean, I think the podcasts that are missing for me are just like really in depth, like security stuff. There's a lot more like blogging around that kind of stuff because you can't really show like a breadboard on, on a, yeah. on a podcast, right? Um, but, uh, you know, I definitely would like to find out about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm definitely, you know, interested in, in ways that I can find new stuff. So I'm definitely going to probably spend a little more time with Bricker. Yeah. I'll <laughs> second the request for security podcasts though. I listen to a ton of Swift podcasts and mm-hmm. a couple Python ones. Um, and I've been less able to find more general security DevOps, that sort of thing. Um, so they, that, that's definitely an area that someone could make a podcast for. <laughs> yeah, I've been so impressed with that breaker search. That's my favorite part by far. Yeah, I really like that. Um, so Kat asked a second question, and she asked, uh, what mistakes did you make with your first company that you know not to repeat on the second? And Tom is a founder as well, so this is a valid question for both yeah, of you. Yeah, I'm curious what Tom has to say. Yeah. Oh, mistakes. Uh, I don't know. I mean, like, uh, let's see. I've been doing startups since I was like 15 years old. <laughs> so I've seen a lot of mistakes. Um, I think one of the, the biggest ones is just poorly spending your money. Um, I worked at a startup where we had a shag carpet walled music room. 
Uh, I'm pretty sure that I knew what else happened there. Um, <laughs> you know, we spent ridiculous amounts of money on things. We, we bought Napster for like a month. What? Yeah, yeah, right? I know. <laughs> so, like, like acquired what, what, Napster. What acquired Napster <laughs> for a month and then gave it back. So like there's all kinds of weird stuff like that that happened in, you know, sort of like the, the early boom. Um, you know, now I think money, even though it's pretty easily available to entrepreneurs, I think, you know, still paying attention to where you spend your money is, is key. Like, you know, some of, some of PG's early stuff about, you know, like, don't, don't go get an office, work out of your house. You know, a lot of the YC ethos is really, really stuff that I recommend people stick to because it's just, it's so easy to be like, oh yeah, I got all this money. I'm going to go get a flashy car. I'm going to go get a nice office. I'm going to go, you know, buy the, buy the best screens and stuff for me. And then they just spend their time, you know, derping around on like trying to be like whatever they, they feel like makes them a startup successful person. founder rather yeah. than, yeah, rather than, yeah, yeah. Playing startup scene stirring, I think is kind of another good term for it. I mean, that those parties are fun, but they don't, they don't get your company anywhere. <laughs> so, Go to other people's. Yeah. Parties, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Just take the, fr- yeah. So I'm the opposite. I'm so frugal. <laughs> um, all of my startups have pretty much run on, um, I don't know, steam air. Um, so yeah, we're still even breaker is still very frugal as a company. Um, but I've definitely had other, other issues. My one is sort of the opposite. It's asking for help. Um, so going out and trying to build, I think I've always thought, oh, I can build it. I should just build it mm. as opposed to how do I get other people involved in my company? How do I have other people care about this? Um, how can we build something better together? How can I listen more to users? How can, you know, and now everything we do with Breaker is super user feedback focused. It's just what do people want? Let's just build what everyone wants. Um, and it's just a totally different approach than I'm building something that I want for myself, right? So it, and it's been much more rewarding. Like building things because people actually are asking you for them is just so – it's easy to do. Mm-hmm. It's a little hard to get over the ego of like, oh, there's a bug here and someone's talking about it. Or, hey, we don't <laughs> have this feature yet. I'm sorry. Um, but that's really been a huge, huge change for me. The The other thing is more personal. Um, my first few startups I struggled with myself as a founder um, and not really – fitting the mold of what I thought a startup founder would be like. And same for a developer, starting off even as a developer. Like I used to get these programming books um, that were like like developers like us and they'd have pictures on the front that look nothing like me. <laughs> so I was like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> um, so it's figuring out. And it's not just like the way I look, but it's also my personality. Um, like I don't feel like I am a startup founder. Um, but that is also sort of coming to terms with that is like I, I have this mantra every day that I, I get up and I say I can only be the best person that I am like like mm. sort of be true to myself um, and that I don't have to be exactly like Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk right like I'm I'm not that's never gonna happen <laughs> so, so I, I would say that's yeah. also a good thing yeah <laughs> yeah yeah but you know there are definitely like a wider variety of founders right. out there that don't get as much like glory in the totally. press and the media that are still phenomenal founders running huge companies just maybe less less exciting than yeah, or just like less flashy. Or, I less mean, it's, flashy. it's just chance and maybe running a business yeah. that's not particularly sexy, yeah. which is always hard. 
Um, so you mentioned user testing now that you guys are a little bit bigger than you were during YC, like <laughs> giving it to me and being like, Hey, what do you like about this? <laughs> yeah. How, how are you doing user testing at a larger scale now? Yeah, we have uh, several different ways that we collect data from users. We have just an in-app bug reporting tool. It's kind of the most direct. You can actually just send us an email. If you take a screenshot in the app, it actually prompts you like, hey, did you see a bug? Do you want to send it to us? <laughs> <laughs> Which is great. It's a tool called Bug Life. Um, so we love Bug Life. Uh, we use Mixpanel for implicit user testing. And this is actually, I would say, almost more valuable than what people tell you is what they do. Um, so we use it for things like um, testing retention, doing funnels. So knowing like when people drop off in a particular, like if we want them to take a particular action, what happens that they tend to not do that? Um, A-B testing. So we actually, we don't do a ton of A-B testing, um, but we do with things like search and discovery, mm-hmm. um, do more A-B testing and sort of like, what do people actually want here? Um, what are they actually tapping on? What are they listening to? What gets them excited? Um, so those are probably our two biggest tools. Hmm. for collecting user feedback. We are starting to do more like user experience testing and we're about to send out our first like survey, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm always a little bit like, oh, I don't know if I want to send out a survey. Yeah. <laughs> um, like I, I like that people reach out and give us like feedback directly. We get a lot, yeah. of, a lot of email feedback. Have, have there been any surprises in like the, the product you designed and how it was en- ended up being used? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example, but there's like stuff every day that just, you know, the way that I use a podcast app is not the way that everyone else does. And we've sort of in our mind have this like ideal user of who we want to be a breaker user. And it's not like a hardcore podcast listener. We're not on the extreme of the spectrum. Like you're listening to podcasts all day and you're very fussy about your settings. Um, but on the other hand, it's, n- it's someone that we want to be more long-term engaged with the product. So it's not just someone who's going to drop in and listen to one episode. We really want to, you know, get people into podcasts podcasting um, and get people into listening to podcasts the same way that you would like watch Netflix, right? Like we want people to be as excited about a new episode of their favorite show um, as a podcast as they are um, the next episode of their favorite TV show, (laughs) (laughs) which is exciting and really fun. And I I think there's a lot of room for a podcast to grow to really fit that. Um, And I hope that Breaker can be part of that. Like the whole industry of podcasting needs to grow in order for it to be uh, a really exciting uh, business opportunity. I mean, I think it's 250 million a year now in like ad revenues, which is like tiny considering how much people talk about podcasting. Yes. Yes. I think there's definitely room to grow. And that was one of the reasons um, I started Breakers. I was looking yeah. for a market that wasn't saturated, that wasn't, that was growing, um, but could be accelerated by yeah. using technology. Why do you think the iOS podcast app is so popular? Because it comes installed on the phone by default. I know, but ap- <laughs> Apple Maps is garbage. And it like Apple Maps got usurped by Google Maps, right? I guess it might be better now. I haven't used it. Yeah. Well, hopefully Breaker will take over and, and yeah. be the... <laughs> yeah. I, this is what we're going for. It's like, how do you become better than what comes installed on the phone? And that's... It's it's a hard problem. Yeah. Okay. But a fun one. Absolutely. Yeah. And so uh, Backtracks, who's actually our podcast host, they tweeted at you. Um, they asked, what's the most difficult challenge in podcast discovery? Uh, so for I'm, I have a very strong opinion on this okay. and I will lay it out there. We do episode discovery, not show discovery. Mm-hmm. And the distinction there is there are a lot of podcasts being produced these days where a particular episode will really get you. Um, so it's more topic based episodes or story based episodes. Um, there's a couple, there's a few podcasts that are like, or many podcasts that are serialized formats or have like a longer story to tell. But when we're talking about individual stories, I think what gets people hooked 
on a podcast is a good story. It's like watching a good clip of SNL, right? <laughs> like, like sometimes you just want to know what the good, good parts are. So for us, we want to highlight the good episodes um, based on users liking them, listening to them, commenting on them. And that's what we highlight in Breaker. It's it's what is hot right now, um, not based on like, so Apple uses editors. They have people who go in and say, hey, you should like this show because we as an Apple editor think it, then it's like, I just want to know what's the best episode right now. Like what's the one that everyone's listening to? Yeah. And so Alan Lee, so you mentioned H, uh, Netflix before, Netflix uh, podcast. Alan Lee asks, I love Breaker. How's Breaker going to be the Netflix of podcasting in the future? Alan Lee with the long-term vision, basically giving our pitch. So that's 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 sort of what we our our goal um, is to become this source of really great content. Um, what I find interesting is I think that podcasts are getting better in quality in terms of the storytelling and the shows, but I don't know that they've quite reached the level of the Game of Thrones of Game of Thrones of podcasts. That's mm-hmm. when we talk about a lot. It's like right now we're seeing some of these really good podcasts, but we haven't hit the show. I mean, we've had Serial, um, which was a big, big popular show, um, a big popular podcast, but. Um, where, you know, and, and it's really a chicken and egg problem. Like if we had that show, um, would it be just distributed across all podcast networks? Um, could we actually make money off of, of that kind of show if we had a show big enough? Um, but is there a big enough audience on Breaker yet to make it interesting to have a big show? Um, so I think we're kind of taking the approach of trying to gain a large audience using Breaker and then be able to present them with, um, unique content. Um, that we that you know is of the quality of something like a Game of Thrones mm. or a House of Cards <laughs> or <laughs> I mean it's a, it's a challenge. Yeah, I mean even sure. Hardcore History is like five episodes a year, and it's him and other like staff working on that show. Yeah, it's it's difficult to produce, but it's actually much cheaper and easier to produce a podcast than a television show. It's yeah. like a hundred x more expensive to produce a television show than to produce a podcast, a quality podcast. Are you working on your own yet? Original content? I am not a. I don't make podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely on the technical side. Uh, I have much respect for people who are storytellers. I actually just went to a live podcast taping this weekend, or a live podcast show. They were actually playing back an episode that they hadn't aired. Hmm. Um, of Love and Radio. I'll, I'll give them a shout out. But uh, it, it was it's super interesting, and I got to talking afterwards about storytelling and um, how it in itself is a skill. Um, and I just don't have any time to work on developing, uh, developing that. But Craig, you, you have a podcast. Working on it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you have any questions, yeah, let me know. Yeah. Do you feel like your strategy has evolved over time? Sort of like given feedback from listeners and how have you, how has the podcast changed? Um, so this is the second podcast I've done. So the first podcast I did was called Salt of the Earth and we interviewed, uh, small business owners that were funny. And, uh, it was a great podcast. I had a lot of fun doing it, but finding guests was really hard, mm-hmm. especially because they're often, you know, just obscure small business owners. And so not only is that difficult, but then distribution becomes a real challenge. So that's super hard. Like distribution across like almost every podcast is super difficult. So with this one, uh, we do YouTube and YouTube works really well. Um, aside from that, my strat, like in terms of host style, I don't know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Uh, your approach to how you do interviews, because you both interview shows, right? Yeah, they're both interview shows. Um, I've recognized how important it is to control the energy in the room. And as the host, it's totally on you 
a lot of people think, oh, you know, I'll just bring in Lee and Tom and they're going to be super fun. This is going to be great. And you are both super fun, but that's not the case. Like you have to like have a certain energy about you and keep it going. Um, transitioning is always difficult between subjects. Uh, and I think one thing that's maybe obvious to the listeners and the, the YouTube people is that I introduce people in the podcast edit rather than having people introduce themselves. Cause that can be a little, like it kind of takes the air out of the room if someone's not used to introducing themselves. Oh yeah. I guess, uh, would you say that startup founders are better at introducing themselves than salt of the earth interviewees? It's totally sales, right? Like if you're good at sales, you can really like come and like make it super engaging. But, um, more often than not, people are just like, you know, they're, they're just modest, Right. So like both of you guys are coming. It's like, Hey, you know, like I'm Leah and I work on breaker <laughs> and, and it's, it's cool and everything. But the reality is that you have to, you want to get someone hooked really early on in the podcast. And so that's when the energy has to come. So if you start out with like, Hey, Leah, what do you do? Yeah. Then it's not quite as good. So yeah, I would do that. Uh, we edit the podcast. I think a lot of people are like, ah, I don't have to edit. Like, I'll just go. Um, and I feel like, I think a lot of people don't realize how edited a lot of the most popular shows are. Oh yeah. I just did an interview on a show called Hack to Start. They edit them. I didn't realize it because it has a very natural interview type feel. So I'd listened to a few episodes and I went on the show. And so I then could compare what I said versus what came out. And it's so much better what came out. <laughs> Very heavily edited without sounding edited, mm. which I thought was amazing. Um, and I know you do a little less editing. It's Not little, that much. Yeah. 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 I, I really admire Joe Rogan's podcast because like they can keep like a three hour conversation like at high energy and fun and they transition pretty well. And that's something that I've been trying to get better at doing, but it's difficult, uh, especially with video, right? Because the continuity becomes an issue if you're just like cutting all over the place. Whereas if you looked at the, uh, the time and like the time something was recorded for the serial and then like placed it back into the episode it's all over the place yeah and i actually that's something i wish i saw more podcasts do so another request for podcasts is to incorporate um music legally of course um sounds um sort of using exploring audio more as an art form um i've i've definitely listened to some pieces that that do that and it, it does make a huge difference it's not necessarily the best thing for like interview type shows um, but there are shows and stories you can tell where adding those elements in um, mm. really helps. Yeah. I would also say to podcasters, definitely transcribe your stuff because Google is not friendly to audio and you want that like index stuff right there. Yeah. And it's pretty cheap to do now. Which is actually something we're, we're thinking about starting to do for Breaker too. We can get into like future ideas. We have some pretty crazy ideas. For, I, for yeah. I mean, if you can talk about it, let's do it. Um, so we do want to eventually transcribe, um, podcasts that, that are on Breaker, which is pretty much every podcast. Um, however, uh, right now there's some options where you can pay to have things transcribed either by a human or a robot to varying degrees of success, but they're fairly expensive and cost prohibitive for something like Breaker where we have millions of episodes. What else do you guys want to talk about? Mm, I found a company doing, uh, what, what I did with crypto seal in 2011 <laughs> now. And like they, they have more adoption. It's kind of funny. Um, they're called, uh, Env key and, uh, they're basically doing secret management for app developers. 
I love, I love all of the, I think there's a huge opportunity in security to do sort of uh, secret management. Like right now, things are just like, oh, put in an N variable or whatever. It's like so bad. And for us, as soon as you have a team of more than like two people, you need to be sharing all sorts of private information. And with companies, um, it's like if someone joins the company, you got to set it all up. If they leave, like you have to somehow like revoke all these tokens, right? Um, so it's pretty terrible right now. I think there's a huge opportunity there. Yeah, I mean that that was the thing that we tried to address with CryptoSeal was that you know we had all felt the pain of managing secrets and stuff like that, and and some secrets were more secret than others. Yeah. Um, you know, but you know it's still a tough problem. It's still something that developers hate to deal with. You know, people still share passwords and like spreadsheets and stuff like that, which which just kind of makes me want to like <laughs> hide my head, in my hands. But you know, uh, there's there's technology coming out there for it. Um, I believe Lyft actually like published something that's actually kind of useful. It's hmm. it's pretty interesting. Um, you know, I mean, like this is an area where like I have a lot of background cause like I've got a patent on it all, 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 but, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to see what things come back around in terms of security. Um, but password management still, it, it's a huge problem. Nobody really does it all that well, especially for developers. It's a huge pain in the butt. So mm. anything that makes that easier, I'm, I'm all in for. So that that's kind of neat. Um, you know, beyond that, I think, uh, you know, uh, if somebody wants to fund a DNA sensor for your phone, I think that's probably going to be a, a good market. Um, I know that there's, uh, there's some companies out there doing some more sort of weird, like bio aware sensors. And I think that'll be, that'll be pretty interesting. Um, if, you know, if you look at, you know, the last five years with people, paying attention to all of their sort of personal metrics and stuff. Like yeah. everybody's got a Fitbit. Everybody's got something that, you know, tracks whatever their steps or whatever. Um, I think that stuff is going to be pretty interesting. It's going to get more in depth, you know, five years. We'll probably have a scale that'll be like, Oh, you, you know, should probably cut out eating this or you should eat more of this or something like that. Um, I think we'll see some pretty interesting consumer technologies come out of, you know, weird, potentially security stuff. So if you weren't working at YC, what startup would you work on? I mean, start, start. Um, I mean, I definitely think that there's a lot of room for more security stuff. I think there's a lot more things that can be done with, uh, like end user metrics. Um, if you go back and look at like, like a, like a good example for security is DDoS. It's still a thing. Like it's been around forever. Um, you know, the, the first big DDoS I remember was against eBay in like 1997 or something. That's 20 years ago. Right. Yeah. So this is still a problem. They're just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, you know, my, my current, you know, method of mitigation is telling people to go get Cloudflare. It's, it's the simplest thing. Um, you know, I think there's going to be, more stuff in that space, um, especially as people, you know, start publishing more interesting things. You know, I kind of think that the internet's still in its infancy in a way because, you know, yeah, Facebook is kind of like microblogging for everybody, but it's really not. It's not that ubiquitous. Um, you know, people, you know, Instagram actually is a little bit more ubiquitous. People, you know, take pictures of their food all the time. And like, then while that's kind of whatever it is, it's it it's interaction. I think we'll have people doing more sort of like life blocking kind of stuff. And I think when we see more of that, we'll get a lot more interesting perspectives on people. 
Um, you yeah, know. yeah. I love this thought and I love that you're getting into sort of like biometrics and I, I, I love passive sharing as a concept and there aren't very many apps currently that do it. So people say, oh, could there be another social network? And, and something I'm fascinated by and haven't seen it done super well is like, so, so for example, uh, Breaker and like things like Spotify um, tell you, you know, what you've listened to and show mm -hmm. other people what you've listened to in the past. And it's like a passive behavior, not like intentionally sharing that. Um, but there was for a while, I think Path did some really interesting stuff mm. with passive sharing. Sort of if you had sort of these monitors turned on, you could sort of publish that. Right now, a lot of the health data and sensors, even things like Fitbit, uh, aren't extremely social. Um, you can kind of see other people's step counts, but they're not everything that you could potentially be sharing. But it's like, it's questions of, so what is interesting to see, um, I'm like kind of a lurker. So I love like <laughs> I, my favorite part of Breaker is like seeing what people listen to. I'm like, ooh, so-and-so listened to this episode. It's oh, that's so interesting. Is um, there incognito in Breaker? So we're actually really discussing that pretty heavily right now. We've yeah. had a lot of user. So when we were very small, we didn't get as much requests for privacy. And, and uh, now we're getting a lot more. Um, and so we're figuring out how we want to do privacy on Breaker right now. So if you have a thoughts on it, send us an email. All right. Any of the What's your email? Are, are thinking about it. Feedback at breaker.audio. Okay. You send it to feedback. I actually see every single email that goes to feedback. <laughs> so don't think it's like going into a, like a black hole. Like we actually do look, uh, look at that. So if you have thoughts on how you want privacy implemented, um, we really want to encourage people to share what they're listening to. Yeah. And passive is the easiest way to do it. Like you don't have to think about sharing it. It's not 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 tricky. Um, but then it also there's this level of comfort, like how comfortable are you with sharing that? Like I remember getting uh, a streaming music for the service for the first time. I actually used RDO, but uh and like having people see what I listen to, it's like, oh my gosh, that's so embarrassing. <laughs> totally. No, I'm like, I don't care. I listen to Hansen's Christmas album this winter, no big deal. <laughs> Oh, man. Um, and if you weren't working on Breaker, do you have thoughts on a startup you might be into? I actually would probably work on an open source project. I'm, I'm fascinated um, with the idea of right now there's uh, a lot of I'm going to sound really trite saying this, but like there's uh, mobile and web development are pretty separate. I'm fascinated by projects like Swift on the server and React on the device. Um, but I think... I think there's a little too idealistic still. Like, I think I would want to work on practical um, reusability and frameworks. Um, and I love Swift. So I, I'd love to get involved with um, what IBM is doing with like Swift on the server. So yeah, I don't know. That's not super exciting. It's not, uh, <laughs> I'd go a little bit more back to like my open source roots and work on, I, I'm, I've never built a framework or worked on a language and I would love to do that at some yeah. point in my life. Yeah, totally. Cool. All right, guys. Um, so if someone wants to get into security or building podcatchers, what would you recommend? What, would, what should they check out? There, there's honestly not a lot of stuff out there. Um, you know, I used to tell people, oh, you know, if you're really that interested, go to DEF CON. That's not really a great idea because... <laughs> Uh, it's just not, <laughs> it's, it's fun, but you know, the, the amount of learning you might get done will probably be erased by the amount of partying you do. So, um, you know, I think just, you know, trying to like read through blogs and stuff like that, you know, honestly, Hacker News has some pretty good, you know, security stuff to get submitted to it. Um, yeah. yeah, Hacker News is a great resource. Yeah. Uh, Capture the Flag activities have been super fun. Like, that's kind of how I, I got yeah. a little more into it was 
um, trying that. I'm still terrible, by the way. I'm not, no good at calculus. It's like a little bit beyond me, but that helped me learn some of uh, the tech, the techniques and some of the common exploits. Um, and they start to follow that. I don't know. How, how close are things that you do in a capture the flag event to like real world security issues? It, it depends upon how well they were set up. Uh, I guess I won't really totally go into them, like my heavy background, but like there's a lot of stuff that you can simulate pretty easily. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of hilarious technology that's still around from like when I was a kid that people were breaking into left and right. And, um, you, you, you just laugh. Um, I think a good way to, to see that kind of stuff is really, you know, I mean, uh, you know, if you, if you want to go into the weeds, you can look through Shodan and find something kind of interesting there. Um, and then start to, you know, read up on, on how it works. Um, you know, the uh, IOT security is going to be like a really big thing and getting pieces of common IOT equipment is pretty easy. You know, it's like maybe like 10, 15 bucks. You can get a little programmable computer essentially and start poking away at it. Um, like I, I dug into MicroPython and mm-hmm. like submitted some patches and did some cool stuff with some boards and like had a lot of fun, you know, it cost me you know, 10 bucks maybe. So you can get started pretty easily doing some of the basics. You know, if you're looking for like ways to learn how to exploit stuff, I mean, you know, that you can Google, you can actually, uh, insecure.org has some really great, uh, mailing list stuff on it. You can sort of see what's, what's new, you know, looking through new CVEs is, kind of an interesting way of learning about stuff. Um, there, there's really not a great way to get an intro aside from like having somebody kind of mentor you or, or essentially breaking the law right now, um, which I don't do not recommend. <laughs> yeah. I, I was like, Oh, captures like, you're like, Oh, breaking the law. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I'll take you one step further. <laughs> do you have any favorite last questions from podcasts? Okay. Is there anything, any f- common philosophies in software development or security that you disagree with? I mean, there are some sort of old school methodologies of things where it was really kind of sub- security by obscurity. And like that stuff is just, I mean, it's, it's BS basically. Um, you know, I, I think if you're, if you want to be like a good software developer, like you have to, you know, be good, good, good at, you know, the tools you, you, you use regularly. Um, you know, I know, like, I think, like, three or four programming languages. I don't think that's really super useful advice. Yeah. Um, I, I know lol code. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I know some pretty silly stuff. Um, doing esoteric stuff is, is not recommended on either side. So I don't think I can think of, like, a, a methodology that would be good or bad. Um, I think some people rely a little bit too much maybe on, like, source code control. Um, I feel like maybe the Git security model is pretty bad when you compare it to some of the older stuff, but you know, the usability you get out of it is like way, way higher. So I don't think those things really go together. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. I think I'd, I just fall on the, uh, on the side of being really good with your tool rather than always looking for the newest tool. Um, cause that, that's just, it's been tiring to me with my like limited experience as an engineer where it's like, Oh, you have to use this language or this framework or this thing. And just like, how about we just get really good at Python or, you know, you know, choose your, choose your tool. But yeah, that would be mine. Yeah. How about you? Oh, that's a really good one. 
Um, oh man, I just had some and then I just yeah. forgot them all. <laughs> that was such a good one. I love it. Yeah, yeah. All right. Thanks for listening. So as always, the video and transcript are at blog.ycombinator.com. And if you have a second, please subscribe and review the show. All right. See you next week.